Progressive Rugby League. I want to take you back in time five or so years. It's a stuffy meeting room in a cramped inner Sydney office. Yours truly, John O'Duncan, has organised for his peers a presentation from a hotshot research company trying to sell their latest fancy wares. These guys have been the darlings of the trade rags over the past year and my boss is pretty impressed with my securing the meeting. How did you get a meeting with these guys, she asks with a hint of disbelief. I have my ways, I reply heroically, keeping my gaze fixed straight ahead. Fast forward 45 minutes and my boss is ushering the poor salesfolk out the door before they've even finished their spiel. Thanks for your time, guys. We'll be in touch. The meeting room door slams shut. The paper-thin walls shudder. My boss looks me dead in the eye and says flatly, a million stats, zero insights. She was right. And that story is a microcosm of the modern world in which we live. We are drowning in data, statistics, information about almost every subject, most of which we have no idea about. Climate change, COVID-19, mental health. We're being served line graphs for lunch, data sets for dinner. But do we really understand what we're consuming? Like everything else, data and stats permeate through the veins of modern rugby league. We all use stats to justify our position on why Bryson should be chosen ahead of Braden and why Smoker should be the next coach to get the flick. Data and stats have always been weapons of choice, but nowadays there are so many weapons that it's suffocating us, it's blinding us, it's even dangerous. The American astronomer Clifford Stoll once famously said, Data is not information, information is not knowledge, knowledge is not understanding, and understanding is not wisdom. In a world that belches statistics from every geyser, how can we get from data to knowledge to understanding, and maybe even wisdom, in as few steps as possible? How can we wade through the trash so we can glide among the sweet stuff? What are some tricks that can help us survive the daily data tsunami? And how can we make better decisions, or at the very least, spew out higher quality rugby league Twitter takes? Well, to help us get there is Liam from the thoroughly excellent Pythago NRL website, a high-quality service which trawls through all the dirty data so we don't have to, and so we can reside in the stats that matter. Pythago NRL is data-focused but not data-worshipping, and it knows that not every morsel of data was made equal. Liam, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks for having me. That was quite an introduction. Well, it's great that you've agreed to come along. So, Liam, when it comes to utilising data and stats, there are obviously two ends of the spectrum. Those who treat it as gospel and live and die by the data, and those who disregard it totally as an affront to their unparalleled feel for the game. Obviously, a sensible approach would be to reside somewhere in the middle, but do you have a rule of thumb about how people should approach data and statistics in their analysis of rugby league? You sort of touched on it in the intro, actually. The key before you start looking at anything is trying to work out what you actually want to know mm. and then working out whether the data will actually give you an answer out of that or not. And it's not necessarily that when you start going into data looking for what you know, that you cherry pick out an answer, you might actually discover something completely different. So you generally approach the use of data in rugby league and statistics. Your starting point is you're looking to prove or disprove a hypothesis, is that right? Yeah, I guess there's usually a take floating out there on social media <laughs> and that might trigger my curiosity one way or another depending on whether I agree with it or not. 
Mm. And then I might have a bit of a think about how that'll actually be represented in the data. Sure. And then actually go into it and start sorting through it. I understand. I like how you say there's usually a take on social media. There's usually 4 million. Now, Liam, what are some typical traps you see people falling into around their use of rugby league statistics? There's two really bad traps that I see a lot of. The first one sample size and the other one is underestimating the role that luck plays okay. in rugby league. So on sample size, I saw some great examples of that after the six again came in. People were very quick to judge to conclusions about how it had impacted on the game. So we saw people claiming that the blowouts had grown, which, yeah, we saw the Broncos get pasted twice on free-to-air TV. So <laughs> that went out to a huge audience, but... That wasn't necessarily reflective of everything Mm. that happened in the game since the season resumed. And then there was takes about, you know, Melbourne lost their first game back. So Craig Bellamy wasn't able to keep up with the changes that had been caused (laughs) when, you know, he's got 20 years of runs on the board (laughs) and we're supposed to write him off after 120 minutes of football. doesn't make a lot of sense. On the luck side of things, I think rugby league's a pretty chaotic game at the best of times. Sport is in general. So people tend to naturally ascribe motives and reasons for things happening when sometimes it's just pure chance that things unfold the way they do. Mm. The way the ball bounces after it's been kicked in a game of rugby league can have a huge bearing on the outcome of the game, whether it gets swept up by a player running onto it or just bounces away uselessly. Mm. But we never really think about how lucky the team is when the bounce goes the right way and they win the game or it doesn't go the right way and they lose the game. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, Liam, you recently did a great analysis piece on, among other things, how the stats following the introduction of the six again rule didn't necessarily align with people's initial perception of what was happening. You mentioned that just previously. People were going on and on about how quick the game was, but the stats gave us a slightly different perspective. Can you take us through what you found with that one? I guess I touched on it in the previous answer where there was a lot of discussion about whether games were blowing out more or the game had become a lot more lopsided, and that wasn't necessarily showing up in the score lines. We had mm. total point scores of games that were a bit higher than average, and we had margins that were a bit higher than average. Mm. But it wasn't unusual. It wasn't outside of the range of what we've seen over the history of the NRL, for example. I dug into it a bit deeper later and found that what was happening is that the winning team is scoring as many points as usual. Mm. The losing team is scoring slightly fewer points than normal. Right. And I think that's largely attributed to the fact that there's fewer penalty goals being kicked at mm. the moment, that there are fewer penalties being given away in the first instance. Mm. So it's interesting that you sort of get that perception that blowouts are happening, but it's not quite precisely what's happening. And you only sort of find that when you go through it and do a bit of maths on it. Mm. Yeah, and you also spoke about, in that piece, how people were conflating speed with the continuous nature of play that the rules had facilitated. And so, you know, after the first round, players probably felt it was faster when the NRL returned because they hadn't played for ages and were probably slightly low on fitness as well. So context plays an important role as well, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So if you define pace in terms of amount of stuff happening per amount of time, Mm. then the pace of the game had absolutely increased and not necessarily just proportional to the less time the ball was in play Mm. the players were running more they were kicking more they were dropping the ball more all of that was happening in the same 80 minute window that we're used to Mm. so it definitely feels a lot faster when you're watching it at home but whether you prefer the faster style of football or not is not entirely aesthetic decision really Mm. now Liam, how far can technology take us with data analysis on rugby league? Are there data sets out there that could influence the game if we just had the right technology? The data set that we have access to as amateurs is pretty basic. It's a lot of counting stats, talks about running meters, Mm. tackles that are made, line breaks, you know, the sort of meat and free veg of rugby league. The NRL itself actually does some really incredible statistical analysis behind the scenes that we never see. 
Right. Um, I mean, I've seen a little bit of it, and the amount of information involved is just genuinely overwhelming. Right. So it's really hard to know what's actually buried in there yet. I don't get access to that on a permanent basis, and unless you work for a club mm. or you're willing to fork out a large amount of money, you'll never get to see a lot of that. So what we see a bit in Australian sport, and might be the case overseas, that a lot of that data set is proprietary. Okay. And it's a bit hard to know where that's all going to head because we're not really sure what's in that data set. I guess my gut feel is that you know, you've got Formula One where they've got a team of engineers sitting in the team's base in the UK while the cars are going around the track wherever in the world. Mm. And there's a constant communication link where the team back in the base are running strategy simulations throughout to figure mm. out when the optimal time to pit is or what have you. I don't know if rugby league's ever going to get to that point where mm. you've got somebody sitting on the sideline with a laptop constantly running simulations about how strategy or tactics should be changed in response to how the other team's changing. Mm-hmm. But there's probably a heavy medium between me running a spreadsheet on the weekends and having a team of analysts on the sideline where there's um, some efficiencies to be found. Yeah, well, you never do know, do you? Because, I mean, it's hard to predict what's going to happen in 10 or 20 or 30 years, and it's hard to actually comprehend how quickly the world changes. So, yeah, I mean, that sort of thing where you have a team of analysts running models while rugby league's going on in front of them, geez, it's maybe not as uh, fanciful as we think. Yeah, well, I guess the flip side of that is that rugby's been around for, you know, 100, 125 years, Mm. and a lot of... I guess what I've found over the years is that a lot of received wisdom pretty well holds up. Mm-hmm. You'd like to think over 125 years that people playing the game will naturally find a way to sort of play it optimally. <laughs> yeah. So you don't want to get too optimistic about what data and technology and modelling can achieve compared to just trial and error over a very, very long time. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it's hard to imagine that the data analysts on the sideline would come up with you know some sort of ploy of running backwards. Now, Liam, does having such a data lens in your view of rugby league take out some of the romance and magic of the game, or does it enhance the experience for you? I don't think it actually matters that much to me personally. So I'm not really that interested in the players as people, if that makes sense. It's yeah. come across very cold-hearted. <laughs> but the human interest side of it, it's not that interesting to me personally. So I don't think it takes that sort of romance out of it. But when I'm sitting there watching games, I'm not sitting there like I'm watching the Matrix with the green numbers falling down the screen. <laughs> it's more I'm just there watching the game and enjoying it like a normal, quote-unquote, normal fan, mm. which makes me sound very neuroatypical. Yeah, I don't think it's really changed the way I watch the game that much. Yeah, fair enough. Now, let's focus on the field now. Any examples where statistics have made you reconsider your view on a particular aspect of the game? Yeah, so I don't see myself as being a particularly switched-on person when it comes to sort of the real technicalities of rugby league. Like, Mm. you know, when people talk about shape and structure, that sort of stuff, it's not something that I can see. I can see it when somebody breaks it down really simply and points it out. But when I've stopped watching the game and switched over to spreadsheets, as it were, I did a bit of work a couple of years ago where I looked at short kickoffs and short dropouts. Oh, yeah and how that is actually completely underutilised as a strategy and without breaking down the theory behind it too long and going into a statistics lecture. Basically, if you can recover the ball at least 25% of the time, it's worth doing short dropouts and short kickoffs. Okay. So it was funny for a while, I was getting tags pretty much every time it happened in the NRL and get a little thing on my phone. You're like the Vossi of short kickoffs. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Well, it hasn't exactly percolated its way to the top. In fact, I think it was kicked off because Des Hasler was doing it at the Bulldogs. Right, okay. Which he does not seem to have taken with him to Manly for whatever reason. So 
while the, I think the numbers stack up, I'm not sure why he's gone away from that strategy. Mm. We do player ratings now as well. That makes me think a lot about not just who's good and bad, but the context of those ratings and what they actually mean. So just because you've got a high rating doesn't automatically make you a good player. It makes me think a lot more about what they're actually doing on the field to justify that rating and whether that justifies the tag of being good or bad. Ah, I see. Like, for example, I had David Nofaluma, who had a really great game on the weekend. Mm. He's always been a fairly highly rated player under my player rating systems, but he got dropped to reserve grade for most of, I think it was last year, because of his defensive qualities. Now, I don't really know enough about watching his defence to know whether that's a fair assessment or not, but I feel slightly vindicated by him having a pretty good season this year, (laughs) that that talent or that production was always there. Yeah, he's having a fantastic season. Now, sticking with what's happening on the field, what statistics are you looking at to try to predict an outcome and what statistics do you consider red herrings? Um, I like to just keep an eye on running meters. I think that's a really basic statistic that gives you quite a lot of information. Running meters correlate really well with winning games. So the more running meters you have, the more likely you are to win mm. a football match. And at any point in the game, if you if you pull up the stats on NRL.com or whatever and just glance at the team's total running meters, you can see quite easily who's having the better game yep. and who's got more likely to go on to win it. Everything else is... They're not red herrings, but to me, they're not as easily understood mm. or as highly correlated with winning. But when you're looking at statistics, there's, there's a couple of different types. There's what I think of as like trivial statistics, which can tell a story in themselves, but they're not necessarily statistics that if you get more of, you will win games. So completion rates is a really good example where the Roosters don't have the best completion rate in the league, mm. but they are the best team in the league. So that tells you something about their style of play. Yeah, that, that, um, that's a really interesting one because I was going to ask you if the importance of certain statistics change with time as the game evolves year to year because, yeah, like I'm sure in the not-too-distant past, completions would have correlated better with victory. But, yeah, last year I had a look. The Roosters had one of the worst completion rates. So and what the Bulldogs do you have one of the best and they're terrible. Yeah, so um, does that change from year to year or is that just consistent just depending on how the teams play? Completion rate specifically is just the factor of how the teams play, I think. There is some correlation between completion rates and winning. Like, obviously, the more you drop the ball, the less likely you are to win the game. Mm. But that's a, if you're looking at that at just a purely statistical level, that's more of a errors correlate with losses. Yeah, sure. Rather than completion rates correlate with losses, it's sort of a sidestep, I guess. I've only got a few years of statistics, and I've only been doing this for a couple of years, so mm. I don't know how much it changes from year to year unless the NRL decides to change the rules, which, case in point this year, you know, running metres have gone up in total about 10%, give or take. Yeah. As have a lot of other statistics with it off the back of a rule change. And if you go further back in time, you're talking about when the game had unlimited possession. If you were somehow able to take the statistics from the game in the 50s and the game now, you know, they'd have completely different meanings in terms of the way the game's played. I would think it takes a fairly substantial change to the rules to really affect sort of the weighting you give individual statistic types now. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, on that, I'm interested just by watching the game to see if the six-again rule has made completions more or less important because, as we say, last year the Roosters had one of the worst completion rates and the Bulldogs had one of the best, or if not the best, so you can sort of gather that it's not that important. You know, the efficiency of how you use the ball is, is more important to, to use a Toulouse Olympic term. But I, I'm wondering if the six again rule would make completions more or less important because there are less stoppages and, you know, you've got to be a bit more aerobically fit to get through a game. So, yeah, anyway, it's, it's worth keeping an eye on, that's for sure. Mm. Now, what statistics would you like to see added 
to the usual menu we get at half time and full time, you know, completions, possession, errors, etc. Are there any that you think would be useful for, for rugby league fans to get a bit more insight? Um, I have to be perfectly honest because I don't really listen to the commentary that much, particularly at halftime. That's kind of when the TV goes on mute. <laughs> Fair enough. But when I do watch it, it comes across to me as being like something that they have to do. It's a box ticking exercise that mm. they think that they have to get through as part of their broadcast. It's going through the stats, but I don't get the vibe from any of the presenters that they really understand what they're talking about or what it means. They're just sort of rattling off a sheet of numbers because that's what the producer says they have to do at halftime. And then, like, I understand that that's not going to be everybody's strength. Yeah. But it'd be good to see people who are a bit more engaged with stats talking about stats, if that's what they're going to do. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody would really care if you scrap the recap of stats at halftime. <laughs> if you're going to do it, do it well. I would personally love to see stats that enable us to measure creativity. Because, you know, once again, we go back to the six again rule. I wonder if that's going to promote creativity or, or otherwise. But that's another thing. Maybe that's a, a job for the future, Liam. Stats that <laughs> enable us to measure creativity. You know, put it at the bottom yeah, of the list, but keep it on the list there, maybe for a... <laughs> few years time now you sort of touched on it before but player statistics are there stats we should be taking note of and any we should be ignoring obviously running meters is an obvious one yeah obviously a big fan of running meters try scoring is another really mm. obvious one assists and line breaks are pretty much the fundamentals of scoring points though so if you've got halves who are racking up assists or any player racking up line breaks or tackle busts mm-hmm. that's usually a pretty good sign One thing is kicking meters, which I haven't actually figured out why this is, but kicking meters do correlate really well with winning. Is that right? And yeah, so just kicking the ball down the field improves your chance of winning a game. And I don't quite understand why that is, but it is. That's really Um, interesting because you've got running meters correlate and then kicking meters also correlate. You would think if you're running more, you'd have to kick less distances. Yeah, you'd think that. I guess it's ultimately a game of territory, to Mm. use the cliche. Mm. So any metres are good metres, yeah, um, right. even if it's a defensive metre, if you like, mm. pushing the opposition back 20 metres as opposed to 10 metres or what have you. But it is a bit deceptive because halves playing in bad teams or halves having bad games can still rack up kick metres. Yeah, of course. Which sort of covers the deficiencies there. Yeah. Liam, let's talk a bit more about you and your work. Why did you start wanting to interrogate rugby league data? What was the drive for you? I was scratching around at about the end of 2016, looking for a project, and I'm an engineer by trade, so I'm pretty handy Uh, with numbers. mm -hmm. It's not necessarily my passion, but it's just a fact of life, Mm -hmm. and I do like writing. So around about that time, there was an economist called Matt Cowgill, and he started a blog about the AFL, doing ELO ratings, and I thought, oh, that's a really good idea. Mm -hmm. I didn't know you could do all that stuff, so I had a poke around on the internet to see if anybody else was doing anything like that for rugby league and and find too much so i thought i'd just start there and see where it took me okay yeah so you're an engineer so you like to know how things work so that that's kind of explains that a bit for me now (laughs) now you do rugby league predictions through statistical modeling you mentioned elo as one of the methods can you quickly explain that method and the other methods you use how accurate have you found them over the years and how have you tweaked them over time so elo ratings are the the really basic ones. They were invented by a guy named Yellow for ranking chess players. Okay. So the idea is that you start off at 1500 is the sort of arbitrary standard and then your rating goes up if you win games and your rating goes down if you lose games. Right. But your rating will go down more if you lose against worse opponents and your rating will go up more if you beat better opponents. Gotcha. And then it becomes this sort of, if you play enough matches in chess or they use it for video games, FIFA's world rankings are now based on Elo. Right. If you have a large enough sample size, it 
becomes self-correcting. So you can use that to assess teams' performances, and then from that you can derive the probability that two teams with given ratings will win a game. And that becomes surprisingly powerful way to analyse rugby league games. Okay, the, the million-dollar question, how accurate have you found it over the years? <laughs> so I have two ELO rating systems, but the one that's optimised for head-to-head tipping mm-hmm. averages about 61 to 64% for the NRL, so it's not that oh, great. Yeah. Like, a human should be able to beat that. That's pretty good, though. So what's that, about five, five, five out, of out of eight? around. That's pretty um, good. You take that most weeks. Yeah. The interesting thing is that over the summer, I spent time creating ELO rating systems for different leagues, mm-hmm. and it's interesting watching how rating system that's set up roughly the same way for each league has wildly different success rates. So by the time you're down at League One, I think it was about 75%. Right. Queensland Cup was a little bit more than the NRL, but it was less than New South Wales Cup. And I think those sorts of facts teach you a little bit about how those competitions are weighted sort of competitively within themselves Mm. in terms of like a disparity in talent, but also just how unpredictable they are. So the NRL, I think, is the least predictable out of the dozen or so leagues that I've looked at. Right, okay. And you said they're self-correcting, so you don't have to tweak them yourself over time? Is that how it works? Yeah, so there's some formulas for calculating how the ratings change Mm. and the variables in those formulas. So how you derive those variables is kind of up to you. But if you apply that uniformly throughout the 20-year history of the NRL, Mm. then ratings adjust to suit team performances. Okay. So on a related note, we hear a lot about modelling all the time in the news, particularly through the COVID-19 crisis. Are there any myths about modelling that we should be dispelling? There's a really good expression in engineering and possibly other fields, which is garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that often you'll get taught to do, say, a complex calculation and you'll do it once by hand and then you'll just use software packages thereafter. But you need to understand how that software package works, which means understanding the fundamentals of how that calculation works Mm. to vet the outputs of the software package so that you know that something's gone horribly awry from your expectation. You can backtrack to find where the mistake is. And often modelling, whether it be sports or economical or political, is based on assumptions. And if you don't understand those assumptions and how they interact with each other, then you can't really vet the output of the model. Yeah. And to be fair to most people, most people don't have a lot of time to be able to interrogate statistical models in a great level of detail. Mm. So they kind of rely on the authorities telling them the truth as best they can. But that's obviously a pitfall because you're trusting people and they may or may not be worthy of that trust. Mm, very true. Another one, I suppose, is that modelling is not necessarily a prediction of the future. It is a scenario that could uh, happen if all those assumptions, like you mentioned, uh, come to be, but it's scenario testing rather than future prediction. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah that's right. So it depends on the kind of modelling you're doing, but, for example, I can do some modelling of the outcome of the rest of the season, mm. and I can say, well, there's a 30% chance the Roosters are going to win, there's a 30% chance Storm are going to win, there's a 15% chance Para are going to win or whatever the numbers actually work out to be. But those are all probabilities, right? So you might be a little bit more informed, but not necessarily 100% about what's going to happen because the future is not already written and the best we can do is give you a probabilistic forecast of what's about to happen. Yeah. And I remember when Donald Trump got elected, people were upset because all the modelling <laughs> said that he had a, only a 30% chance of winning and, you know, Clinton had a 70% chance of winning and people were very upset at the model, yeah, well, even though, you know, it was saying it had a 70% chance of winning, which meant she had a 30% chance of losing. That's right. And if you flip, if you roll the dice and 
or one or two comes up, well, that happens about 30% of the time. That's right. But I thought that was, that was a particularly interesting example of modelling meeting the real world. Mm. And it was funny that Nate Silver, who was the one behind that model, was really the only pundit that I know of that was forecasting anything but a huge landslide mm. against Trump. But he stuck to his guns in terms of, well, this is more likely than you're allowing yeah. and was ultimately proven right, I think. Mm. Now, Liam, you've also done some really interesting analysis on TV ratings data to see which teams rate highest on the box in the NRL. And that was a particularly fascinating piece because you found it wasn't as straightforward as it might have seemed. What were some of the challenges you found in trying to find a narrative out of the TV ratings data? The first challenge is actually getting the TV ratings because they are not published in an easily accessible format. Mm. I had to rely on another Twitter account for the industry. Oh, yeah. you, I think it's their handle. who would just been collecting it by hand for a couple of years and they sent me three years worth of rating data to analyse because mm. I asked for it and they were nice people. <laughs> That's a, an example of where I had a sneaking suspicion about what I would find if I started analysing it, but you kind of actually have to do the analysis to get the answer, which was that the Broncos were far and away the most valuable team in terms of TV ratings for the NRL. Mm. And I kind of figured a couple of other things like ratings drop off as the season progresses, so they start high and then mm. over time gradually decrease a little bit, and that games between good teams outrate games between bad teams or other things being equal. Mm-hmm. A lot of that analysis is driven by those hunches and determining whether or not they were in fact correct. The overall intention was to discover which teams have the best ratings pulling power and which ones don't, mm. which required stripping out the variables between each of the games to see whether the ratings were a reflection of the actual teams involved. So mm. once you account for the time of year, once you account for the quality of the teams involved, and once you account for the time slots, because later time slots get better ratings than earlier ones, mm. Mm. most of what you're left with is the raw pulling power of the clubs involved. Mm. So I found that the Broncos were probably the most valuable team. North Queensland and Melbourne followed just behind them, and Melbourne was kind of an interesting one, obviously mm. not being a team from the heartland, still managing to pull in pretty respectable audiences. And then out of the Sydney teams, it was Para and South for the top two, and then everybody else was much of a muchness with Manly way, way, way behind. Yeah, right. That was very surprising. was not expecting them to be basically like putting up the same numbers as Canberra and Newcastle, mm. who are regional teams based in relatively small cities, so we don't really expect them to have too much ratings power. Mm, that, that is very interesting. And it's a good example, what you went through there is a really good example of what you need to do. You really need to strip out a lot of the noise, the time slots, yeah. all sorts of things to actually get to the crux of uh, the answer. Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess there's two parts to that. One is that I wasn't still super happy with the amount of noise that had been removed, but definitely hadn't gotten rid of all of it. So that piece that you referred to has a fairly lengthy discussion about what it all means. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the other part of it is that, like, I don't really have a... We've been talking about statistics for however long now, but I don't actually have a formal background in statistical analysis. Yeah. Sort of my great fears is that one day somebody with an actual background in statistical (laughs) analysis is going to come by and go, well, the way you've analysed this is all wrong and you could have just done all of this. But we can only do what we can do with the tools that we have. No, I think you're doing a very good job. And I think audience information is a good example of the, the pitfalls of using data and statistics and the importance of context. Like, a year-on-year rise or fall in TV ratings is not necessarily reflective of the game's popularity. You really have to look at the context. This year, the NRL ratings are in for a bit of a hit if Brisbane continue to play poorly. They are the most popular club in the land, like you say, the highest-rating team, 
and they also have the most free-to-wear TV slots. So if those ratings fall, it brings down the overall numbers. The NRL would not have necessarily become less popular through the year. It's just that Broncos fans don't want to sit through the pain. A similar thing happened a few years ago in the AFL when Carlton, who were traveling horribly, were given way too many Friday night free-to-wear slots. So... I mean, the other side of that coin is that the following year, assuming a Brisbane Broncos or a Carlton improve or the TV schedule aligns better with form, you know, the ratings are going to look great year on year. So really, to get any sense out of TV ratings, you really have to look at long-term trends and numbers, you know, kind of like climate change. You, you don't look at what's happening this summer. Uh, you look what's been happening the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 summers. Yeah, that's right. And there's other big structural factors affecting those numbers, like the switch to streaming. And streaming numbers are not published anywhere. They're not even available for subscription. They're just not out there. Yeah. But people are obviously giving up TV to watch on their phones or on KO or whatever. Mm. But those people are not picked up in ratings numbers. So you're seeing a declining audience, but the audience isn't really declining. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's another contextual thing, isn't it? So... I think from what I've read, free-to-air television audiences are declining, I don't know, 5 or 6% per year. So if your rugby league or AFL audience is declining less than that or increasing, then you're doing pretty well. And I suppose the other thing for people to know is some of the tricks media companies and sporting brands use when pumping up their own tyres. You know, for example, when it comes to TV audiences, the currency, the metric is average audience. So that's the average number of people who are watching the game over its entire course. But Sometimes, you know, TV networks might pop in the peak audience number in the press release. That's the audience figure for the most popular minute of the coverage. And and then beyond that, beyond TV, it becomes even more murky because you've got, you know, digital audience measurement, which which is pretty accurate, but there are many ways to muddy the water. You might get a, a club talking about the amount of views or eyeballs one of their videos got, but w- what's not clear is what counts as a view. You know, one second or two seconds or three seconds, it, it kind of varies. And it's very different to the way TV audiences are measured. So the TV audience measurement, the average audience, is it's a rock-solid metric, whereas video views or eyeballs is, is not as rock-solid and it's pretty murky. So it's important that people know that there are different measurements for different media and you can't necessarily compare them like for like. No, that's right. And the TV ratings are generally based on surveys and set-top boxes. There's no magic way for the network's free-to-air networks anyway, mm. to see that 3 million people will have their TV switched on to State of Origin mm. Game 3. They extrapolate that from, from the 10,000 mm. 10, people that they have information for what they did in fact watch. Yeah. And then there's question marks over, is that sample reflective of the demographics of the country mm. or the area in question? Yeah. Or is it skewed in some way to you know, upper-middle-income type families, for example? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, they, they do a fair bit of work in TV land to sort of try to make it as representative as possible, the sample size, so they can extrapolate accurately. So, But you're right, there is a it's a sample, so they might sample you know 10,000 people and, and use that sample as the Bible of what every one of the 25 million people are doing in Australia. So it is important to understand, although I think it's, it's probably fairly, fairly accurate. But yeah, when it comes to digital measurement, that is very accurate, but the way it's measured is very, very different. So it's just a it's a murky world, and it's just, I suppose, important for everyone to know that there's just different ways of doing it, and so you just got to be aware of it. Yeah, I think that'll improve over 
time as broadcasters decide to agree on a standard for how that should be measured. Yeah, that's right. And that metric will become the new ratings. Yeah, and I think that's what they're doing with the, the live streaming data. They're, they're kind of working on that so that it is aligned with the, the TV audience measurement. So you can actually go, okay, this is how many people watched this game of rugby league. You can include the online, you can include the TV, which at the moment you can't do. So it's, it's not a, a full picture. Now, before we finish off, you know, a broader question, data literacy is, of course, a much broader issue than trying to understand who's going to win a game of rugby league. What are some of the things people should look out for to ensure corporations or politicians or rugby league commentators who are using statistics to justify a point aren't pulling the wool over our eyes? It's a really tough question to answer. My go-to method has always been it's not enough to just say X player has scored 16 tries and they're fantastic. Mm. That's one data point that you would use in building an argument up to X player is fantastic because of these reasons, one, two, three, and four. Mm. And you don't see a lot of well-structured arguments. And that's one thing I like to try to focus on is how you actually communicate what you're trying to communicate is you've got to sit there and think about, well, okay, these are the building blocks of my argument. They're based on these facts. Mm. And then you sort of assemble it piecewise to get a fairly solid structure for what you're trying to say. And I don't really want to hammer anyone in particular, but often when mainstream media is doing statistical analysis, particularly in the sports context, Mm. they don't do that. They will just rattle off a list of trivia (laughs) and then you're supposed to accept that as being good without really providing any context for why that matters. And I guess you, you do see that in other fields as well. But a big chunk of that is that the maths or the statistics or the modelling involved, it's all very complicated and jargony and academic. Mm. And you've got a person who's responsible for communicating that in between who might be a generalist or a journalist or not necessarily au fait with all of the technical details. And then they've got to communicate that to an audience. One of the advantages I have is that I don't really have to worry about what my audience does. Yeah. Like they're not, it doesn't matter if they're big or small or people are interested in I'm just doing it for myself. Mm. And of course, it's nice when people take an interest and something does well, but, you know, I'm not going to lose my job if I don't get enough clicks. Mm -hmm. But a lot of really important things have to be pitched to a very wide audience and a wide audience isn't necessarily going to be interested or necessarily capable or want to hear all the really nitty-gritty details so that they can make their own judgment. They might just want to be fed Mm. the facts. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the key is for people to, you know, try be informed about data and statistics and ask questions. What is this data and information that you're providing me? What does it mean? Where does it come from? That's probably the best thing that people can do. I guess we, we don't have a really good mechanism as a society for asking those questions. So, mm. you know, traditionally being media, at least, has traditionally been a one-way street where mm. you know, it's radio broadcasts or newspapers or TV. You can't ask your TV for more information. Yeah, that's right. The internet's changing that, but we haven't quite figured out what a good way for doing that is. Yeah, an efficient way. social media where you just hurl poop at each other, but <laughs> it doesn't really aid anyone's understanding. Yeah, and I'm interested, you know, I'm interested in what you said about not having the pressure to get clicks and everything. A few weeks ago, I had Maria Rakuvia on the show, formerly Maria Tsialis from Big League, talking about the, the nature of journalism and, you know, the changing nature of journalism. And what you said there just reminds me how important your work and people like you who are doing similar work who do this nitty gritty stuff, not worrying about how you're going to sell it or how you're going to shape it to please anyone. This stuff is really important because, yeah, it's probably stuff that a lot of people find hard to penetrate and therefore is maybe niche. So, you know, kudos for for doing it and providing that outlet for people. 
Yeah, thanks. But I do feel bad sometimes about doing it for free, basically. Right. Because I'm contributing to a market where, and my contribution is negligible because I see how many clicks I get and it's not <laughs> that many. But, Similar to the listens I get. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing labor that somebody else could be getting paid for in theory. And I'm doing it for free because I can. And that's a privileged position to be in. But mm. there are definitely journalists out there who deserve a living from what they do. And I do feel bad a little bit about undermining that sometimes. Yeah, look, that's a, a good point as well. That's the other side of the coin. But yeah, I suppose the, the point is, yeah, the way the world is that there's not many journalists who are going to be doing that because it, it doesn't necessarily pay. So it's good that there are people like you out there doing this sort of stuff for us all. All right, Liam, we are out of time, unfortunately. It has been illuminating. Go well in your future adventures. Looking forward to reading your next analysis piece. Thanks for helping us navigate the muddy statistical waters. And most of all, thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks for having me. Progressive Rugby League. Pythago NRL, add it to your rugby league reading repertoire. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for contributing. The idea for this podcast came all the way from the nation's capital. You can catch us on Twitter at Prog Rugby League or on email progressiverl at outlook.com. Until we next meet, Rugby League. Call me. And see ya.